You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. We come then to the twelfth and final lecture in this course on spiritual theology. As you have seen from the book accompanying this text by Father Jordan Allman, I have tried to give my due to the Dominican tradition in spirituality. But perhaps you'll allow me here in this final lecture in the series to consider a topic that is very dear to the Jesuit tradition of Ignatius Loyola. Namely, in the twelfth lecture, I'd like to consider a particular way of proceeding with the examination of conscience and with the discernment of spirits. Not, of course, anything that Ignatius invented. He rather calls upon the long traditions of the church and especially the desert fathers. But he has a particular way of doing it and a particular set of insights to communicate. And so in this final lecture, I would like to call attention especially to his own particular ways of doing this. They are both, in the case of the examination of conscience and the discernment of spirits, designed as some of the very practical means for cultivating a keener sense of the presence of God, a keener sense of how it is that we cultivate a sense of His constant presence and find God in all things. Hence, the examination of conscience that I'd like to discuss first is both a matter of immediate preparation for confession, but also a way in which of making a daily form of prayer that will help to make us even more mindful of the presence of God in our lives all day long. And then, in the course of considering the examination of conscience as a daily prayer, I'd like to consider the discernment of spirits that we need to make, so as to try to better appreciate which of the movements of spirit that we experience in a given day are from God, as opposed to some other source, infernal or simply internal. The examination of conscience, then, there are many ways, many profitable ways of making an examination of conscience, especially when one's immediate interest is immediate preparation for sacramental confession. But whatever the method we find useful, one crucial element in any examination of conscience will be the examination of our sins. And when we examine our sins, it is a matter of submitting what we do, what we have failed to do, what we've thought, what we've said, submitting all of these things to the commandments, submitting them to the Decalogue, submitting them to the two great commandments that Christ gives us in the course of the Gospel. In his spiritual exercises, particularly at Numbers 24 to 43, St. Ignatius Loyola proposes to us a format for the regular examination of conscience that includes, of course, an enumeration of one's sins done in light of the commandments, but also a way to try to have a deeper appreciation for God's various stirrings and promptings and for our progress or regress in holiness, and hence the importance of this topic for our course in spiritual theology. What he suggests to us in that portion of the spiritual exercises is that there are two particular ways of making an examination of conscience. One of them is what he calls a general examination of conscience, the other a particular examination of conscience. The general examination of conscience is a thoroughgoing consideration of all of one's actions and feelings and attitudes, both to note any sin that has come in, 
but also to become mindful of what progress there has been or what areas need a little bit more progress in the spiritual life. By contrast, a particular examination of conscience is designed to focus on some particular vice or some particular virtue. And both of these are envisioned by him as spiritual exercises, hence his general title for that handbook that he proposes for retreats and for spiritual direction. It's called spiritual exercises, exercises like one might do in calisthenics or exercises like one might do in, say, drilling for military prowess or exercises that an athlete might do to try to prepare and discipline his body and his responses for use on the athletic playing field. But these are spiritual exercises. They're a set of exercises that one performs spiritual in nature, things having to do with the examination of conscience or certain patterns of prayer, various things that one can do both by way of a retreat but also that one can do in daily life. And this one that we're focusing on right now, the examination of conscience, is one of the early set of exercises that he gives us, particularly dealing with our conscience and dealing with our enumeration of sins and our sense of the stirrings and promptings of God in our life. The general structure of a general examination of conscience that Ignatius proposes has five steps. The examination of conscience that he envisions is something done not just immediately before confession, but rather is intended as a daily prayer. And it has five parts that are easily remembered by the mnemonic of the word grace, where each letter in the word grace will stand for one of the five parts of this exercise that we'll want to undertake in prayer. Important to remember, though, as with any method suggested for prayer, I was trying to make this point in the last tape, any method always must serve what the purpose is, and hence the method is not as important as accomplishing what the prayer is designed to do. And yet the method can be helpful. And so he proposes to us as a method this examination of conscience in five parts. The first part, remembered by the mnemonic grace, is the letter G, which stands for gratitude. Precisely in order to make this examination of conscience not just a self-help technique, not just the sort of pattern for personal improvement Benjamin Franklin would have loved to include in his Poor Richard's Almanac, rather this is to be a form of prayer. And so precisely to begin it and to sustain it as a prayer, what Ignatius urges that we do when we undertake this prayer is that we make some act of gratitude. It could be that the gratitude we have is for something that happened particularly in life that day. It might be that we're mindful of something that went well, something that was given to us by God, some particular good relationship in life that was blessed. What we do is we remember that specifically, or perhaps what we're remembering is something further back. We might be remembering our mom or dad and what they gave us. We might find ourselves on a given day grateful for simply the blessing of life. What we should do to begin this prayer is to make an act of gratitude, to thank God for that thing in particular, to thank God for the particular event in our life or the more global aspect of our life, and to say our thanks. You know, sometimes we find ourselves that we wish we had said thanks to a person and never quite had the time or the opportunity or remember to take an opportunity when presented. What this is designed to do is to cultivate a sense of gratitude. The second part of the prayer, remembered by the R in the mnemonic grace, is a request, specifically a request for light. 
that just as we can see nothing except when the area where we are is lighted, whether lighted by the natural light of sun or moon, lighted as this studio is by electrical light, lighted as our homes may be. We cannot see anything except where there is light. So too in the spiritual life. We will not be able to see what we need to see for the proper examination of our conscience unless we have the grace of God's light, and so we must request it. Now I envision this part of the prayer not as a penetrating spotlight, not as something which would just terrify us, but rather something that is kind of like a flashlight, something that will help us to focus on what it is that God wants us to see. And so what we're asking for in this second part of the prayer, and usually it can go relatively quickly, is the grace to see what God wants us to see. Frankly, I'm not sure it's possible to see everything that's going on in life. But by God's grace, and especially if this prayer of the examination of conscience is practiced regularly over the course of a certain period of time, what I think God will provide for us is the grace to see what we need to see. He may need us to see things that are going well in our life that we hadn't noticed, and He wants us to pay more attention, precisely so that we'll be more grateful. Or it may be that He'll want us to see things that we have been disinclined to look at, some of the dark parts of our life, some of the shadows, things that He'll want us to confront so that the appropriate kind of sorrow and contrition will grow, and yet things that we are inclined to pass over. Hence, what we're focusing on in this prayer of requesting the grace of light is asking Him to show us what it is that He wants us to see. The third portion of the prayer, the A, stands for an account of one's actions and attitudes. I think that this will normally be the longest portion of a 10-minute prayer. This could well be the part that takes seven or eight or 10 of the minutes. And in the account of our actions or attitudes, what we need to do is to go back to the last time we did this examination of conscience and then do the 24 hours since then. I often try to do it late in the evening before I go to bed. I live with the freshmen at Fordham, live in a dormitory, so you can imagine what time I sometimes get to bed. But supposing it's midnight, what I try to do is to go back to the previous time when I said this particular prayer, and I ask myself, well, I was just about ready to go to bed. Did I find myself falling asleep easily and quickly, or was I still tossing and turning, still thinking about something that happened in the philosophy department, still thinking about one of the conversation with the freshmen, still thinking about something going on that I'd been reading about or seeing or discussing? Did I fall asleep easily? Did I dream? Now, this is not particularly an invitation to extensive dream analysis, but I am mindful, my own patron saint, of course, is St. Joseph, who received instruction in a dream about how to take Mary as wife, how to care for the child Jesus, how to take them eventually to Egypt to flee from Herod, and how to return from Egypt when the danger was over. He learned what he needed to learn in dream. Likewise, his own patron, Joseph in Genesis, had to deal with the questions of concern to the early people of Israel dealing with Pharaoh's dreams. My point is simply that sometimes dreams can be significant, especially if there's something recurrent. It may be that there's something there that needs dealt with, and it may be that the Lord is speaking to us as He did to St. Joseph. How about when we woke in the morning? It might be one of those good morning Lord experiences when one is bright and cheery. On the other hand, it might be one of those good Lord, it's morning, when we have to counter a desolation right from the beginning. Whatever the case may be, it's useful for us in the spiritual life to know whether I got up on the wrong side of bed or whether I got up and was already mindful 
of the Lord and of the promise of the day. When I awoke, did I make some kind of offering of the day? Because we are called upon to have a constant sense of prayerfulness, and yet we know that it's hard to, to be praying all the time. We've got lots of other stuff that we need to do. Hence the need to offer the day as the morning begins. Offer everything that we do to the Lord in His greater service, in His glory. And then what I do is I watch the unfolding of the day. I think of this kind of the examination of conscience as sort of like a videotape in my mental VCR. And just as on a VCR there is a stop and a fast forward and a rewind and a play button, well so too in the examination of conscience if one only has 10 minutes to do the entirety of a 24-hour day, well one has to fast forward through a lot of it and then stop and replay certain portions. And the parts that one wants to look at in particular are those things where there was something especially stirring. Whether it was an act of sin that I need really to hold myself accountable for, to say my act of contrition to God for, that I may need to bring to confession. On the other hand, it may have been something that went well, and that what I'm supposed to learn by this examination of conscience is how well it went, and how I was, for a change perhaps, more alert to God's stirrings and promptings. And I want to know that so that I can be more alert to stirrings and promptings of God in the future. It's a way to examine whether I've used my time well in the Lord's service, whether I prayed when I was supposed to be praying, whether I was regularly willing to do my work and my duties when I was supposed to be doing them, whether I took enough time for recreation and conversation with friends. It allows me to examine what television I've watched or what books I've read. That is, we don't need to give the same amount of time to all these things, and there are many things which we can pass over relatively quickly, but this will give us the opportunity, especially if we're making the examination of conscience daily, give us the occasion to look at this with regularity and, hard-headed as we might be, or docile to the inspirations of the Spirit, it gives us this opportunity to let the Lord into our life and to examine what it is that we need especially to examine so that we can devise the appropriate means to try to render it more pleasing, to find ways to eliminate a vice, to encourage a virtue, or in some way or other to give ourselves yet more completely and more entirely to giving glory to God, which is the purpose of our spiritual life. The fourth part of this prayer is the C. The C stands for charting one's course. It might be a matter of continuing on course because one was doing just fine. It might, if one has wandered off, be a matter of correcting one's course and getting back to center. If one has sinned, it's a matter of being contrite and getting to confession. It's a matter of saying our sorrow. And hence, in the course of our examination of conscience, if we have found ourselves sinful, if we have found the need to say our act of contrition, this fourth part of the prayer is a great moment to do so. Sometimes what I do is say the act of contrition at this point. Sometimes what I do is to make an Our Father. But what I'm doing when I'm doing it is doing it mindful of what I want to do tomorrow, what resolution I want to have. And then tomorrow I'll be able to examine whether I succeeded or not, whether I was responsive to God's grace in trying to do whatever resolution I had come to. Finally, the fifth portion of the prayer, the E in the mnemonic grace, stands for entreating the Lord for the energy and the enthusiasm to carry out the course that I've charted. 
I use the word enthusiasm for this portion of the prayer largely because of its etymology. The word enthusiasm has as its center the syllable thu, which is a contraction of theos. It's the word that in Greek means God. The word en, which is the beginning of the word enthusiasm, means within or inside, and the asm is simply an abstract ending. Hence, what the word enthusiasm, for which we are entreating God, is asking Him for the energy to be within us, with those particular graces that we need to carry out the courses we've charted. I found, as I grow a little older, that some of my initial enthusiasm and my initial conviction that I could, simply by enough willpower, succeed in accomplishing whatever virtue I was seeking or vice I was trying to eradicate has passed into realism. And part of the realism is knowing that there are abiding weaknesses, knowing that there are structures to me and to my mind which require that God come and heal them. It's no excuse ever for not continuing to try, for not making acts of will, for not increasing resolution, and yet it is a matter increasingly at this fifth portion of the prayer to asking God precisely Himself to come and heal, for Himself to come and strengthen, for Himself to come and assist. The very things that we were talking about in the earlier lecture on the various forms of grace. And in this last portion of the prayer, it is particularly the time to entreat the Lord for precisely that set of assistances. I need to give a caution here, namely that this form of examination of conscience is not intended to make us overly scrupulous. And if there is ever a difficulty with scruples, with thinking too much and thinking that one is not forgiven or just refusing to let something go, the very best thing we can do is take ourselves to a spiritual director, take ourselves to confession, and listen to the direction we get. Because the direction that confessors and spiritual directors are instructed to give, the training they've had, is to help us get through our scruples by learning how really and truly to put things behind us. So this is not intended to induce scruples, nor is it intended to induce too much psychological self-observation. It is intended as a way to put ourselves in the presence of God and to practice this as a form of prayer. But as a form of prayer, it can be enormously helpful. Let me just give you one example. Perhaps you have experienced, as most of us have, the temptation that we have, especially after something bad has happened in life, after we've gotten into an angry discussion with somebody, or if somebody has really offended us, there's the inclination that we have all day long to replay the tape. I think you know what I mean. Namely, that we're inclined to go over it and over it and over it again in our mind. Now, if you're anything like me, what you'll find when you're replaying the tape is that I get better every time and the other guy gets a little worse. The scenario seems to change a little bit because our memories seem to get a little creative and I'm a little more justified and the other guy's a little bit more in the wrong. The alternate position, of course, can happen. There are some people for whom we get worse and worse and worse and we, we pile on to ourselves and we get a worse and worse impression. But neither the piling on nor the rationalization and self-justification is true. Rather, what we must do, and what an examination of conscience that is prayerful can help us to do, is to examine this in God's light. What I would recommend is that if one is in the position when one is replaying the tape frequently during the day, I would recommend that one learn to treat even the inclination to replay the tape during the day as itself a temptation. Not just the content, but letting that kind of rethinking churn around. So what I would urge is press the stop button and promise 
that I will get back to this episode, whatever it is that has so aroused us or so excited us, we will get back to it, but get back to it during a formal examination of conscience. Because in a formal examination of conscience, precisely in the way in which I've just described, it is a matter of asking God for the grace of light to see what it is He wants us to see, to try to see this truthfully and not to see it in a way that exaggerates our guilt or on the other kind that excuses us by rationalization. Nothing magic here, no magic bullets that are always going to get it right, but it's an act of exercising trust in God that God will help us to examine our conscience and help us to set our consciences at peace so that if we need to say we're sorry, if we need to amend our life in some way, if we need to repair a broken relationship with another, if we need to simply confess our sin to God and ask for His forgiveness, that we'll be given the grace to do it because we at least tried in humility and honestly to submit ourselves to this grace of God in good examination of conscience. Let me turn in the few minutes that remain on this tape to the consideration of the practice of the discernment of spirits. It's related to the examination of conscience, and yet it's something of a slightly different order. It is a matter here of trying to figure out what it is that is taking place within us, whether it is something from the good spirit, whether it's something suggested to us by the devil, or whether it's simply something that comes to us simply from our own history and from our own psyche. There again are many masters of the spiritual life who have proposed important things here. The thing that the church, I think, most recommends to us is regular confession. I, for one, don't believe that most Christians need special spiritual direction. I think that people, when they're thinking about state of life and are trying to decide on whether to pursue a vocation, perhaps whether to marry, whether they're thinking about important decisions in their life, and then religious who are practicing a certain pattern of spirituality, they may well need careful spiritual direction. One needs to consider this for yourself in company with suitably and appropriately trained people to try to decide whether you need spiritual direction. But what the normal Catholic needs to cultivate the spiritual life is the regular practice of confession with somebody to whom perhaps you can be regularly accountable, or even if there's no one person to whom one can be accountable in that fashion, the regular of going to the sacrament. But if one is engaged in spiritual direction, or if one is engaged in these efforts at yet the more careful discernment of spirits, it is extremely helpful to consult the masters of spirituality. The Desert Fathers have given enormous advice on this. The traditions that are associated with St. Dominic, with Francis de Sales, with Francis, with Benedict, with Teresa of Avila, with John of the Cross. I would like to speak especially here, again, from the point of view of Ignatius Loyola and the tradition in which I am trained, namely the spiritual exercises. In the course of the spiritual exercises, one finds that Ignatius will offer us two sets of rules for the discernment of spirits. I will not attempt here in this lecture to try to go through them in detail. They deserve to be read and studied and would make material just those few pages for an entire course. But perhaps it will be helpful to review just two or three important definitions and two or three suggestions that can bring to an end this our survey of spiritual theology. In those rules for the discernment of spirit, he proposes first as definitions spiritual consolation and spiritual desolation. Spiritual consolation, as he uses the term, refers to any movement aroused within the soul by which a love for God is inflamed 
and then by which we love other creatures in God, rather than for our own sakes. Consolation can take any number of forms, such as an inclination to praise and serve God. It can take the form of sorrow for sin. Doesn't sound like a consolation, but if we really and truly have contrition for our sins, that is a spiritual consolation, even if it means the shedding of tears. Likewise, if we are moved to have compassion for the sufferings of Christ, or compassion for the sufferings of another. These consolations are very much correlated by St. Ignatius with the fruits of the Spirit that one finds described in St. Paul's letter to the Galatians. On the other hand, spiritual desolation refers to just the opposite, namely to darkness of soul, turmoil of spirit, an inclination to what is low and earthly, a restlessness that arises from disturbances and temptations, Again here, one can read of this in the scriptures, particularly looking at the fruits of the flesh that St. Paul describes in that same letter to the Galatians. What Ignatius then proposes in these rules for the discernment of spirit, he gives us two sets of them, he gives us, I think, what is some very good advice. Again, let me just pick and choose a couple of points that are directly applicable and then refer you to the more careful study of the text for the refinements. One of the great rules that he proposes is that when we're in a time of desolation, when we're somehow feeling alienated for God, when we're feeling this turmoil and restlessness of spirit, the first rule he proposes is we should make no big decision. We should not change our course. Frequently a desolation like that will come, precisely stirred up by the evil spirit or by a fear just within ourselves, trying to get us to change course radically just because we feel bad. What Ignatius urges us to remember is that a time of desolation, whatever else, is not a time for a big decision about one's life, the big decision about abandoning a commitment or changing a life course. It is rather a time when we should continue to be guided by whatever rule or maxim of life we had chosen for ourselves during our last time of consolation. But while not changing our course, there are some things that we should do to act against the desolation, and this is the second important rule. Namely, during a time of desolation, we should act against the desolation. Very important to understand what this means. It doesn't mean that we should do more prayer, but rather that we should concentrate more on doing the prayer we were supposed to do. It doesn't mean that we should do more and new acts of asceticism, but rather, whatever acts of asceticism we were doing, we should try to continue to do those. In short, we should stay at whatever our project was. In much the way that sometimes in just normal depression, one can find oneself not wanting to do anything, not wanting to get up out of bed in the morning. The way in which to act against the desolation is to get up out of bed in the morning. We might not feel like going to work, but the thing that we must do is to do our duty with yet more generosity and more firmness and more compulsion. And by more insisting on it, we begin to act against whatever the desolation is. By persevering in patience and in regular prayer, the desolation will pass. Sometimes it will help us to even remember what the consolations were, not so much trying to cheer us up by previous consolation, but simply to remember that when we received consolation, it wasn't because of anything we merited. It wasn't because of anything we did do. It isn't because we were specially worthy. But rather, in consolation, this was a gift of God that God gave us for our own consolation. 
In desolation, if we simply remember that God has given the gift of consolation before, He will come and give us again. And then when we've more or less come back even, there will be time to consider whether or not we should act, whether or not we should change a life course, or what it is we should do under good spiritual direction and under great prayer. It has been a privilege to be with you for these lectures on spiritual theology. I hope that they bear fruit, and I hope that they will encourage you to further study of the truths of the faith and some of the masters of spiritual theology who have great insights to give us in what they have read and in what they have done in their lives by the grace of God. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.